Welcome back to another edition of Quick Bites. Again, this one came from the American Meat Science Association meeting. Charlie Arnott, the CEO of Center for Food Integrity and Look East, gave a presentation. I will admit that I did not start the recording at the beginning of his presentation, but he walked through a little bit of his background with PIC and others and then how the company was formed. And where you'll join the presentation was him talking about what the changes were in society and where trust in our processes and big food and things like that um, shifted. And so um, that will be where you start listening from. Back via satellite, and every night we could see what was going on. That fundamentally changed the social discourse because we had access to information we never had before. The same thing has happened with the internet and digital communications, right? Where people have access to unlimited information today, and that's fundamentally changed the whole communication environment. So when you see that kind of change in communication technology and systems, it changes the way all communication happens, and we'll talk more about that. Christmas Eve of 68, first time we saw a picture of the Earth from outer space. So a recognition that the resources we have on this blue planet are shared and limited. 72, the Watergate break-in, President Nixon ultimately resigned as a result of that. Those of us who were around at that time remember the anxiety we felt as confidence in our government was shaken to its very core. They ran Congress scandal again, raising questions about whether we could trust the military or the government. Three Mile Island, Exxon Valdez, raising questions about big business big energy. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, and the decades of cover-up of the Catholic Church, questions about whether we could trust religious institutions or religious leaders. We had a second president who was impeached but not convicted in the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal in 1998, uh, and all the polarization that was, was uh, related to that, and we're seeing that repeat itself today. Arthur Anderson and Enron in 2000-2002 fundamentally destroyed trust in public accounting. Uh, the public accounting system is set up the financial accounting standards boards, generally accepted accounting practices, all of that, and we had broad trust in CPAs and accounting until that happened. After that, Congress passed Sarbanes-Oxley, and for any of you who have worked for or worked for a publicly traded <coughs> company, you understand the requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley and the tens of millions of dollars that are spent every single day in compliance because of that specific violation of public trust. So if you work in a public company today, all of those dollars are spent on nothing more than compliance. They can't be returned to investors. They can't be spent in research and development. They're just compliance because of that specific violation of trust. <coughs> Abu Ghraib, John Edwards, Tiger Woods, Elliot Spitzer, the subprime mortgage collapse in 2008. Most parts of the world have recovered from that, but that too was the catalyst for new regulations in Dodd-Frank, which have made it much more difficult for smaller community banks to operate, for first-time home buyers to get loans, etc., because of that violation of public trust. The BP oil spill back in 2010, their CEO, Tony Hayward, completely tone deaf, said, well, of course I want this over. I want to get my life back, as he ignored what was going on in the Gulf. He was quickly relieved of his duties. Uh, Elliot Spitzer, uh, the tragedies at Penn State University, more recently at Michigan State, where people begin to wonder whether they can trust academic institutions to protect the young people we send there. And then most recently, Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. So over the last 50 years, the consistency, visibility, and impact of violations of trust have been significant enough that we've been conditioned as a society to be skeptical about whether or not institutions are worthy of trust. So that's where we find ourselves today. As we said, that decline of trust really has been significant enough that we are now skeptical of it generally about whether institutions are worthy of trust. Over that same 50-year period of time, we've seen the consolidation, integration, <coughs> application of technology 
which have resulted in food being safer, more available, and more affordable. But they also now cause the public to think of us as an institution and question whether or not we are worthy of trust. So you see these fairly significant trends coming together where our ethics and values haven't changed, but the size and scale of our operations have, and societal expectations for how institutions will behave has changed. And so those have come together to create an environment we are where we are fundamentally less trusted than ever before. And so the question becomes then how we operate in that, in that environment and how do we go about restoring trust moving forward. We see that reflected, that bias against size and scale in the research we've done where just one in five believe that small farms are likely to put their interest out of public interest, while half strongly believe that large farms will put their interest out of public interest. And the same thing for food companies. One in four strongly believe that small food companies will put their interest out of public interest, while over half strongly believe that large food companies will. So the bias is really against that size and scale, and the inherent belief that the larger the company, the larger the entity, the more likely they are to put profit ahead of public interest. So how do we help people understand that those two are integrated and we don't look at one or the other, we have to be able to integrate both. And that we have an obligation to be profitable, but we also openly acknowledge our obligation to public interest, things like animal welfare, food safety, environmental protection, etc. So kind of summarizing where we've been on that historical perspective, it used to be that authority was granted primarily by office. If you held a title, if you've been elected to a position, people would defer to you and they would grant you authority. Today, authority is much more likely to be granted by a relationship, and that's never been more true than through the internet. The people with whom you choose to have a relationship, the groups with whom you choose to associate, determine in part to whom you will grant authority. We used to have very broad social consensus, driven primarily by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. Today there is no single social consensus, great diversity and many voices. One of the things we struggle with a bit in agriculture is we don't necessarily reflect the diversity or those voices in our, or in our organizations, in our leadership, and in who we are and how we operate. We're pretty much an old white man group, right? Not entirely, but we suffer from old white man disease. I can say that because I am one. Uh, but we've got a lot of folks that don't reflect the diversity of those who are reflecting the concerns that we see in a lot of different places. Again, communication used to be very formal and indirect. We had mass communication. Uh, I grew up in rural Nebraska where when the weather was good, we could get ABC, NBC, and CBS. Right? Uh, when the weather wasn't good, maybe you got one, maybe you didn't get any of them. But you essentially got the same story every single night. So it didn't really matter which network you got because it covered the same story. You have a slightly different reporter with a slightly different perspective. Essentially, we had a common understanding of what was going on in the world because we were all getting the same kind of information. But we've transitioned from mass communication to masses of communicators, where today communication is very informal, very direct, and oftentimes not very civil. So because each of us has access to unlimited information and no one can manage unlimited information, each of us sorts and sifts that information in a way that's specifically relevant to us. But in so doing, we reinforce our confirmation bias in our existing worldview. So very few people are going to watch both Fox and MSNBC, right? You're going to choose one or the other based on your perspective and your worldview, and you're gonna look for that information. And if you were to compare everybody's smartphone in this room, no two would be identical, because we've all chosen different filters to allow us to get the information that's most relevant to us. Now that's a phenomenal tool, right? Because we have access to unlimited information, and we can get the information that's just relevant to us. But it also limits our ability to have that shared connection and to have those important conversations with a similar context around issues like agriculture, food production, nutrition, public health, medical care, whatever it happens to be. We tend to divide into our tribes, and then that's where we spend most of our time in a very tribal, insular kind of manner. 
And where we always believe that progress is inevitable, today progress is possible, the question then becomes, what constitutes progress? And for those of us in agriculture, it's always been increasing productivity and increasing efficiency, right? That's been the definition of progress. That's not necessarily a universally shared definition of progress. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in conflict with those who would define progress in a very different way because we haven't agreed on what constitutes progress going forward. And where big used to be respected, today big is considered bad. And we oftentimes find that very frustrating as well because we understand the importance of economy of scale and that actually we can be better for the environment, better for the animals, produce safer, healthier, more affordable food it at scale than we might be able to do in other systems. But yet that's not the common perception because of that bias we have against size and scale. Any questions about context before we transition into what we've learned about building trust? Challenges, questions, comments, feedback? Okay, we may not like it, but if you disagree with it, let me know. If you can see that it's coming in a different direction, let me know. Well, I will say one thing that you'll need to circle back to for this group. <clears throat> and that is um, the, what you referenced at the very beginning about um, leaning on science. So of course this group, I mean that is <clears throat> a tremendous focus of what we do. So we'll value your thoughts about how we strike that balance between kind of like do this because science says so and providing useful information for the decision making. Yep, we'll do that. We'll come back to this section. We've actually, um, Corteva, uh, the former Dow DuPont uh, pioneer merger, uh, they've engaged us to do values-based communication training and make that available for all 22,000 employees. And so we now have it available in six different languages. We've done training sessions in person on several different continents, and it's a way to help them make sure that they can be most effective in connecting values of science because they know that's what's gonna be effective going forward. All right, so what have we learned about building trust? Um, all of us in agriculture are interested primarily in protecting freedom to operate. We've heard about that, we've talked about that for years. That's the ability to do what we do best with minimal outside interference. Today, that consistently requires a social license. Um, you know, we used to talk about the right to farm. Today, it's really a license to farm and a license to produce. And it's only granted if we maintain that level of social support where people are willing to grant us that permission, right? We violate that trust, we find ourselves the same situation as Arthur Anderson or others once that happens. So that's the privilege of operating with minimal restrictions based on maintaining public trust. And we see that challenge in lots of different ways. It could be public health, it could be some of our old favorites, animal welfare, the environment, <coughs> the laundry list of issues that challenge social license and animal agriculture today are long and continue to grow. So social license is based on trust. And so we wanted to know what does it actually take to, to earn trust? So we partnered with Steve Sapp at Iowa State University. We began with a meta-analysis of 21 different pieces of research on trust in food and agriculture. And in each of those, we identified three common drivers. The first is the role of influential others. And that includes two groups. It's your immediate social circle, family and friends, and then credentialed individuals whose opinions you respect, folks like those of you in this room, doctors, dietitians, scientists, et cetera. What we're finding today is that relatability is now playing as much, if not a, a greater role, in being considered an influential other as a credential. And so being relatable in that conversation is absolutely crucial if you want to be considered truly an influential other going forward. 
Second element, the building process competency. <coughs> this is our science and technical data, which historically is where we've spent most of our time talking about who we are and what we do. We've operated under the assumption that it's an information deficit problem, right? If we simply give people more facts, if we give them more information, if we give them more data, clearly they'll be logical, they'll be rational, and they'll come to our side of the argument. If they've not yet come to our side of the argument, it means we've not yet given them the right data, so we'll go do some more research. If they still haven't come to our side of the argument, do some more research, right? And we've repeated that cycle for decades under the assumption that there's a magic formula of data and facts that we can provide that will ultimately lead to trust. Third element of building trust is confidence or the perception of, of shared values. Can I count on you to do what's right? So once we identify those three drivers as the primary elements for building trust, we then surveyed 6,000 US consumers over three years. We're going to replicate this so it could be published. Uh, and we asked them questions about on-farm sustainability, animal care, food safety, a whole range of issues. And what we found was that shared values were three to five times more important than demonstrating competency and building trust. So we've had the, the formulation, the formula for engaging successfully exactly mm -hmm. now, because we've always started with the data, we've always started with the facts. But what we now know is shared values are three to five times more important. Please understand, Science is absolutely crucial to the equation, but by itself, it's not sufficient. <coughs> if you don't have the science, you're not going to be successful. But if you only lead with science, you're not going to be successful. Uh, it's the old saying, you know, people trust you, the science doesn't matter. If people don't trust you, the science doesn't matter. Right? The science only matters once you've crossed that trust threshold. Then they're willing to give you permission to have that conversation about what your data means and why it should support the So if you want to think about it in a different way, we've, we've kind of been answering the wrong question. Consumers today are asking whether or not we should do what we're doing, not whether we can do what we're doing. Science tells us whether or not we can. Society tells us whether or not we should. Right? So the, the debate isn't whether or not we can. The debate is whether or not we should. So we've been trying to answer an ethical question with science. Right? We're not even speaking the same language. So I think we've got great ethical justification for the vast majority of what we do. But that's not, ten, that's not how we tend to frame the narrative. We tend to let the narrative be framed for us, and then we respond with science, and people go, they, they don't get it. Right? They're completely, they're not, even, they're, not, they're not even on the same page with us. We're not talking about the data. We're not talking about technical competency. We're talking about an ethical question about whether we should do what we're doing. So we also know, again, in today's uh, communication environment, it's much like this was the old model, right, where Dr. Know-it-all from Home State University would go do some research, bring three tablets down from the mountain, they'd hopefully give them to consumers, and they would take that information, and life would be great, right? Not in today's tribal communication environment, where I'm going to crowdsource my knowledge. Right? I'm going to get a little bit from Facebook, I'm going to get a little bit from a friend, I'm going to get something else from a blog or a Twitter post, I'm going to talk to a family member, and I'm going to synthesize all of that in a way that's consistent with my values, to inform my opinion, my belief, my thoughts about the particular issue, right? So it's a very different way of thinking about how we engage because historically we always wanted to drive everyone to a single source of information, right? Well, this is the oracle for information on X. Not today. The more sources of information we have, the more ways we have to connect, the better off we're going to be, the more effective we're likely to be in engaging going forward. Some of you may be familiar with Alan Alda's book, If I Understood You Would I Have This Look on My Face. Uh, he does a lot of work on science communication. 
They said, you know, why the possibility for science? It's a trust issue, but the bottom part in bold there, I think, is the, the, the point that's important to this group. Science and the public have separated so much that many people consider science just another opinion. It is one more data point in all of the data points that I'm going to consider in informing my opinion or belief what it happens to be. And so that can be challenging when we know the importance of science and the role that it plays in actually determining what is possible and what's not possible. So that has become a, a challenge for us from time to time. This is just a quick verbatim from one of the mom tribes focus groups we did. This was in Orlando. And Heidi was a part of that. She was talking about her concerns about the food system, GMOs being one of those. We said, well, that's, that's interesting, Heidi. How did you come to that conclusion? What was the information source that you used? And she said, well, I'm part of a mom's group. When there's a big consensus, I think there's something here. You don't need doctors or scientists confirming it when you have hundreds of moms. So that's the reality in which we operate today. So what does that mean to us strategically? Right? We, can, we can tell Heidi, I'm sorry. You're just simply wrong. Let me send you links to some peer-reviewed research about, about the actual facts on this issue. <coughs> but all that's likely to do is alienate Heidi. Right? It's not likely to engage her or help her be more engaged with us and help her appreciate the information that we have to share in a meaningful way. Another way to think about it, this work came from uh, Forrester research, really the transition from the age of the seller to the age of the customer. It used to be that the seller controlled everything except the buying decision. Today, the only thing the seller controls is the product or service. Everything else <coughs> is controlled by the buyer. Buying decision, user-generated content, product information, and reviews. I mean, how many of you have been online to look at a restaurant or a product or a service and looked at the reviews to determine whether or not that was going to be a valid service or restaurant or something else? It's community-generated feedback that helps us evaluate what's going on today. It's not necessarily scientifically generated. So when we think about engaging with consumers, it can be helpful to understand they have many different needs that they're trying to fulfill as they make decisions about food or food and agriculture. Rational, emotional, and social. The rational need is, I need information, I need some data, can you help me with that? We're stars here, right? We focus on giving them the rational information. They're also looking for emotional reinforcement. Is this the right decision for my family? Should I feel good about this, or is there some kind of concern? I want the reinforcement, but I made the right decision for my kids. And then I want the folks on my Facebook group to reinforce that I made the right decision. Right? So they're looking for reinforcement and information in all three of those. We've tended to play really well and rational, but if we want to compete for share of heart, mind, voice, and wallet, we've got to compete in all three. So as you think about the role that AMSA can play going forward, one of the things to consider is, okay, what can we do to expand our influence beyond this rational? The emotional and social as well. Yeah, can I make a point? So I, I remember Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, yep. in the eyes of consumers, the public was the best um, um, astrological scientist ever, but he was not respected by his peers. So if I'm going to be the rational scientist, and in order to relate to consumers, I have to play upon their emotions. May lose the respect of my peers in science. How do you balance that? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it's not an either or, right? Because I mean, you've got Dr. Oz doing the same thing, right? where he has has decided to go off the deep end, and little of what, little of anything of what he shares is science-based, right? It's all designed to uh, scintillate and capture emotion and, and whatever. So I don't think it's either or. I think it's a matter of finding ways to be more relatable and finding ways to 
connect on values first and then share the information and share the information that's relevant in a way that people can understand and appreciate. And I really, I, I find it offensive when people say that's dumbing it down. <coughs> it's not dumbing it down, it's making it relevant to an entirely new audience. That's an art, to be able to take a complex topic and make it simple enough that others can understand it without, without, another, without impugning the integrity of the data or the process. To me, that's a real art, to be able to take a complex process and distill it to something that is still something you can support, but also something that people can understand. So we'll talk about what that looks like in terms of that values-based engagement kind of thing. Is anybody doing that well today? Oh, we've got a whole bunch of people that are doing it well today. Yeah. Best Food Facts, if you go and look at the, at the, the videos we have and the content we have, we work with people who, who share the content. And I'll give you a couple of examples. We will interview the scientists and we will try to um, put that in very engaging and approachable language. We'll send it back to them, are you comfortable with this going out with your name? They'll go, yep, nope, yes, and we'll be able to modify it, and then we make it happen. So there are lots of different ways to make that work for us. Yeah? One thing I guess that <coughs> makes me just a little leery, Kevin Falta, I, uh, he works in our shop. Yeah. And, uh, Phenomenal Kevin, champion. Yeah, he's a tremendous he's a communicator. Look at the price that he's paying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he's lost his wife, he's, he's sold his house, he's been threatened by these crazies. Yep. Um, I don't know the backstory on him. Maybe Kevin Falta is, uh, he's a strawberry breeder at, at the University of Florida, and uh, he's, he's a geneticist, and he is an excellent communicator. I mean, an excellent communicator, and he has been out front, um, and there was some deal about three or four years ago where it was not, he was hired by Monsanto to give a few talks and he was completely transparent with all this. I mean, and it was, it was time away from the university and, and he's, he has been, he has been completely beat up with this. And I, I mean, he's had all kinds of personal problems associated with what happened from this, Threats to his family, threats to his house. He lost his wife. Him and his wife divorced. Man, it's a bad situation, really. So, and, and he didn't have that ten years ago. No. So I think it's there's a couple of different the ways to, to look at that. Yeah. Kevin became um, the primary advocate for GMOs. I mean, that that was his campaign. That was what he was campaigning over. GMOs have become an icon for what people hate about industrial ag, and so it became. You're defending an industrial ag system. I hate industrial ag. We're going to have this battle, right? And there's going to be winners and losers. And to his credit, he was willing to stand up for his principles regardless and paid a phenomenal price. So there are a lot of issues that aren't nearly as polarizing or as challenging as that issue. And not everyone needs to take the same position that Kevin did. So it's a continuum, right? And I have tremendous respect and appreciation for Kevin and the work that he's done and, and the price that he's paid for that. But we work with hundreds of others on lots of other issues that aren't nearly as contentious, that haven't taken that position and are doing very well. In fact, on Best Food Facts, we now get questions from people in, in academic institutions that want to know when it comes time for their evaluation, how many page views have I had, right? So am I, am I, is my information getting out there? Is it being useful? Uh, are people taking a look at my content? And am I able to help connect and communicate? So it's, it's an important cautionary tale, but I would tell you this is the exception, not the but there are also people who just say, I'm not comfortable in this arena. You know, I really like research. I really like doing that kind of work. I don't want to be a communicator. 
that's okay too. You know, it depends on where you, where you land. Well, I think um, the quote unquote dumbing it down or making it easier to understand, we probably all find relevant because you have to do that. You guys in, at universities have to do that with students, right? You have to ramp it up. Um, I found that in the PACO training that we were asking um, the test questions in a much too complex way. We were using um, a little bit too um, specific or sophisticated of um, language um, that would only be known at probably a graduate level. And so we kind of conscientiously decided to, to write the tests at a different level. So I mean, we probably have to even do that within, like forget about getting to the consumer. We have yeah. to do that oh, in absolutely. our own environment first yeah. too, yeah. right? I was talking to uh, a group of, of retailers and others and having a conversation. Nobody understood the difference between antibiotic residue and antibiotic resistance. I mean, they assumed they were one and the same. But what it means is there's tetracycline in my pork chop. <coughs> no, that's not what it means. That's something entirely different. So we've got to continue to have those conversations, but in a way that others can can understand and appreciate. Okay, so I, I want to. This is going to be. I really like your feedback on this section. Uh, kind of a critical mistake. What everybody I think is aware of the, the, the frog in the, in the frying pan or the frog in the pile of hot water, right? If you've heard it or seen it. I want to use this to kind of talk about how we missed an opportunity with animal welfare and missed an opportunity with animal welfare activists. So the whole meeting, kind of the whole, the whole movement started with the lunatic fringe. And it was pretty easy to dismiss Ingrid Newkirk and others as they went out and uh, you know, got wrapped in cellophane plate or plates and, and uh, talked about having their flesh barbecued and yada, yada, yada. They related to no one, right? They got media attention because they were sensational. And that would irritate us, and they would come and throw blood and do things at industry events and so on and so forth. But it wasn't irritant. They really didn't connect with or, or change really what was happening in public opinion because they were so far to the fringe. And so they just didn't relate to or share the values of uh, the mainstream public. But then we saw a shift from abolitionist to reformer, right? So there was actually a meeting, and I wish I still had the article on it, I can't remember where it came from. There was a meeting. Bruce Friedrich and, and Wayne Baselli and several others, where they got together and said, you know what, we're not getting the traction that we want for calling for abolition. So what if we fundamentally change our strategy and simply ask people to think about the issue differently and think about it a little, a little more intelligently and, and take a different kind of approach? So they began down that path. Now, we look at them as being one and the same, but no one else does. Right? They look at these groups as being fundamentally very different where she has pledged that her flesh should be used in a barbecue after she's dead and her skin should be dried and put on furniture and so on and so forth. Right? I mean, truly out to lunch. Forget all his Me Too problems. Just think about him representing more of a reformer and, and can appeal to the rational majority as opposed to the lunatic fringe. So it was an important shift because the abolitionists would say meat and all animal protein is murder. Animals and people are equal. Eating meat, milk, and eggs is evil. Extreme edgy tactics appeals to a small group of like-minded zealots. Demanding the elimination of meat, milk, and eggs was more than, than most, all but most were willing to dedicate, uh, dedicated were willing to consider. So you really only had the diehard folks who were willing to consider that perspective, that opinion. It's a pretty limited threat. As opposed to the reformer, we're just like you. We care about animals and the planet we share, right? We don't want you to stop eating animal protein. We just want you to be more aware of the impact of industrial ag on people, animals, and the planet. Mainstream approach starts appealing to our friends and neighbor who share the similar values, right? They care about animals, they care about health, they care about what's going on in the environment. So all of a sudden now, they're beginning to appeal 
to folks who are in our neighborhoods and our families and our friends and others. The focus on reasonable reforms engages other like-minded groups, NGOs, public health groups, um, you name all the different studies, right? Eat Lancet, uh, Livestock's Long Shadow, et cetera, et cetera. Right? They, they just go on and on and on. So they also had very comprehensive <coughs> strategies and tactics and were playing the long game. Legislative and ballot initiatives, litigation to challenge labels, checkoffs and credibility bags, undercover video that implied bad actors represented the norm, pressure on brands to drive change all the way through the supply chain, partnering with other NGOs in the environment, animal welfare, and health communities to build credibility, class action litigation to drive change through the courts, supporting alternatives to animal protein, and really committed in understanding this is gonna be a generational challenge. Our goal is 20, 25, 40 years from today, we're committed to making that happen over time through incremental change. The missed signal was we saw we missed that because we saw the strategic we missed the strategic pivot from abolitionist to reformer. And we, we didn't see that coming and we didn't see the implications of it. Because we had understood the objective of both, of both organizations was the same regardless of their tactics, right? So we saw their end game is the same, so we're going to treat them the same. So we're defensive and reacting, reactive, relying on science to defend our interests and claiming what they're saying simply isn't true. But when we attack those who seem to be a rational majority, we appear self-interested, out of touch with mainstream concerns, attacking the values of our friends and neighbors. So all of a sudden now, we're the ones who appear tone deaf and self-interested because of the approach we're taking against the reformers because the perception is that reformers, just like me, they share the same interests as me and my friends. Where the radical fringe, I get it. They're out there, I don't like them, I don't relate to them. This group, I understand. I, I believe they share my values, and when ag attacks them, the, the, the message is, we don't share your values. They share your values more than we do. That becomes a very dangerous position. And we launch short-term efforts that are not sustained or integrated across sectors, right? So individual image campaigns by different sectors. We'll go after the activists for a little bit, we'll do something else. But after about a year, we lose interest and those things tend to peter out. We don't really have a long-term sustained strategy for this kind of effort. And part of that goes to kind of the historical problem-solving uh, cycle in agriculture. The expectation is that we can solve any issue within one cycle of production. So if it's, if it's crop production, Next year, boy, I can get some new uh, crop protection chemicals, I can plant a new hybrid, it's fine. If it's in livestock, I can change my genetics, I can look at what else is going on in the barn, we're gonna fix it. But the cultural mindset in ag is, we're gonna fix every problem we have in one cycle of production. This is a generational challenge, and we've not embraced it as such. We've decided that we're gonna fix this, with, and then we get frustrated that that campaign doesn't yield results in 12 or 18 months, we scrap it, then we get frustrated we don't have something, and about 18 months later, we'll start something and we've seen that happen over and over and over again across agriculture. So I want to shift away from that. Anybody, th this, is, this is kind of a new stuff. Anybody disagree with that or want to challenge that thought process or thinking, what else am I missing in that? What do you think about um, groups like Con Center for Consumer Freedom who sort of intentionally tries to attack that? I think they, they tap into the frustration that producers and others have that, that we aren't being effective and they make them feel better because they get a chance to fight back, right? So they're punching us, I now get a punch back, I feel better because I got to punch back. I don't think it's particularly strategic and I'm not seeing anything that it's effective. But it plays on the frustration and anger that producers understandably feel 
as a result of being in this position and feeling like we're always on the defense. I think with their use of popular media that it maybe makes some people that are on the fence at least think twice about the propaganda coming from the other side. So here's the challenge. If they can identify, if they can start first by establishing the fact that they share the values of, the, of that group as opposed to just attacking the other group, that's the challenge. So what it generally does is it reinforces the base, which is what we've seen in most political discourse today, is I'm gonna attack my opponent, and that's gonna make my base feel really good and empowered. But does it do anything to make incremental improvements for others? That's the question I would ask. All right, so we have a, a new tool that allows us to do uh, digital cultural ethnography on demand. So ethnography is a social science whereby you can observe people's behavior, and the belief is that by observing behavior instead of asking questions, you're less likely to introduce bias. We now have the ability to do that on a massive scale using big data, and to analyze thousands, hundreds of thousands of conversations, purchasing decisions, uh, dialogue around whatever issue it happens to be. And so we did that to begin to explore what's driving people away from animal protein, because this is the, the new place, right, the new, the, the new frontier where people are aggressively attacking those who are producing animal pro or protein alternatives as a way, again, to defend our interests. I think what we're gonna see here is that if you look at the motives and values of those that are moving away from animal protein, the opportunity is to say, how do we help them understand we actually share their values as opposed to attacking? And how do we engage in that conversation so core market moving the way from animal protein, well-educated, middle-class, and upper-middle-class, white women 25 to 44 who are single or in a relationship and have kids. Market's still in the relatively early stages of development with a core market of about 12 million and a potential or addressable market of 161 million. So this would be people who share similar values on other issues but aren't necessarily tying it to meat alternatives yet today. Right? So they're concerned about other similar issues but they aren't tying it to this. But the core market is predicted to grow increase uh, to increase significantly. It's interesting though that our research partner has noted that in the last 60 days or so, they've begun to actually see this slow down, and that we're beginning to see not a peak yet, but it, the the growth is starting to taper in terms of this. And there will come a time in the not too distant future where consumers are going to be asking the questions about the number of ingredients, what's in the meat alternatives, should I be okay with it, should I not be okay with that. So that's coming in the not too distant future. Growth is driven by strong motivations, attitudes, fears, and values. Uh, those producing, processing, selling animal protein need to address those uh, in the core market if they want to remain a preferred source of protein for that influential group. Because if we lose, those influential consumers, it's a challenge for us longer term in terms of where we're fighting. So what's their top motivation? They want to prove they have a higher set of values and purpose. They self-identify as environmentalists or defenders of social justice and labor rights. <clears throat> These goals are pervasive in their day-to-day -day lives. They'll often try to convince others of their approach using social media to promote and self-validate. This is the challenge, right? If they believe that, that's one thing. The fact that they're trying to convince others of the same uh, makes it a bit more of a challenge. Their top fear is leaving the planet uninhabitable. Um, global capitalism will destroy the environment and our, for our children and grandchildren will end up facing consequences of catastrophic changes uh, that were not in their making. They are committed to activism, that's their top value, uh, the campaign for a cause they care about to bring about social or political change. So this is not a group that's likely to sit idly by as things happen that they don't like, that they don't want to see happen, they're likely to engage in that conversation and try to drive change. And their top attitude, 
buying local is better for the environment. Locally produced foods and beverages, usually unique, thoughtfully prepared, with an eye on minimizing the environmental impact. Same can be said of personal care products, home essentials, et cetera. Now, there's a lot of data that would counteract and say that their beliefs, their motives, their values, their fears aren't based in science. It's true. But it doesn't mean that they aren't their beliefs, their values, their motives, and their fears. We still have to address that uh, from that standpoint. So kind of the, the, the top three motivations, they want to prove they have the higher set of values, they want to have control over their consumption, and they want to achieve a sense of wellness. I'm not going to go into these in great detail so we can continue kind of the, the conversation. Fears, leaving the planet uninhabitable, not making any real difference. These are people that want to make a difference in the world, and falling prey to a vested agenda. And it doesn't matter who's vested agenda, so they will also challenge the vested agenda of others. So they're also going to be concerned about uh, whether it's PETA or HSUS or others. They want to think about themselves as being able to make their own <laughs> it seems like they um, actually, if that's true, they are falling prey to a vested agenda. But they, but they, they don't want to, right? So they're, but it's yeah. not going to be a vested agenda if it aligns with my values. Right? That is simply supporting my, my worldview. Their top values activism, knowledge building. So here's the opportunity for us to engage with them if that's, their, if that's one of their top values, and then intelligence. So they want to have, they want to build their knowledge and they want to become more intelligent about these topics. So if we can engage with them in a way that helps them elevate their status among peers, helps them better understand a particular topic or subject, that's the opportunity for us, but we're going to have to do it in a way that is aligned with their values. Hey, Charlie. Yeah. Yes. Is that knowledge building, is that online, is it social media, combination of six or seven different things, you know how? Yes. How could we play in that arena of yeah. knowledge building? Oh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. How you can play in that space. Okay, thank you. What that might mean for AMSA. And then top attitudes, buying local is better for the environment. Compassion is key to social justice. But here's the other one. There are many different ways to solve our body's nutrition needs. So if we don't come at it and say, this is bad and we are good, but we embrace this and say, you're absolutely right. But one of the things you may be overlooking are all of the essential micronutrients you actually get from animal if you're looking for simple ingredients, you know, beef has one ingredient, pork has one ingredient. And so here's an opportunity for you to really operate in a different way. But if there are other things that you think are important or that you want to try, that's great. You know, we're, not, we're not telling you not to. We just want to make sure you understand and provide the information to help you make informed choices because knowledge building we know is important to you. So strategic implications for that. Those of us who are producing, processing, selling protein from animals, we've got to address the motivations, fears, and values, attitudes of those in the core market to remain that preferred source of protein for that group. Attacking them will only reinforce their belief that tone-deaf, self-interested corporations should not be trusted. So attacking them is not going to be in our interest. Targeting and engaging this audience strategically is going to require strategies and messaging that demonstrate protein from animals is better aligned with their values than they currently believe. So how do we do that? Successful engagement has to be sustained and leverage influencers that the target audience trusts. So part of this is to identify who's influencing them in that conversation, engage with them, and let them be messengers. But people in this room will also be, have potential to be credible messengers for that audience. And the approach and engagement should include a broad cross-section of protein interest to maximize and sustain impact. This is also a place where we struggle where AMSA may really be able to play a key role because we tend
tend to approach these issues as by species, right? So you've got a, a, the beef group is going to do this, the pork group is going to do this, the chicken group is going to do this, and then we get become more fragmented because not all those strategies are coordinated or organized. Hartman Group just came out with some research uh, just a couple of months ago. Where uh, factory farming and its abuses have made consumers question the ethics of eating animal products, uh, popular documentaries, and road of trust. The upside for the industry is the vast majority of consumers, meat and dairy, still represent highly symbolic, routine, and pleasurable categories. So it isn't necessarily that they believe that all of those other products are better for them. Oftentimes they're opting out of something that they feel challenges their beliefs and values and ethics, as opposed to necessarily opting into something else. So this is my alternative to an industrial system, my chance to step out of that and try these alternative proteins. So how do we help them understand that the alternative, that the, that the natural protein is actually better for them than perhaps they thought? So trends are real, uh, greater interest in diet and health. This is going to continue. Uh, we spend more in the U.S. now on diet-related health care than we do on tobacco-related health care. Uh, in the U.K., they spend more on diet-related health care than they do on police and fire so it's a challenge um, that we're going to continue to deal with. Greater interest in food safety, environmental impact, treatment of workers, et cetera. Uh, any of you who work with companies that have a sustainability department or a CSR department, all of the issues that fall into that bucket continue to grow. So sustainability used to be synonymous with being green. It's a much broader definition today. There are changes in who we are, what we do, how we shop, and what we value, where we get information, our eating habits, the kinds of food that we Fundamental shifts in who we trust and where we get information. Increased pressure on brands to drive social change through the supply chain. We see that frequently where a company will say, we no longer want that product, that process part of our supply chain. And unlike a public hearing, it's gone just like that, right? So Walmart has the chance to be the house and McDonald's has the chance to be the Senate. And they can just make that decision and the product or process is gone. And there's nothing we can do about it. So as I said before, competition day is now the share of wallet and the share of heart, mind, and voice. That's what we're going to compete. Questions, comments? Uh, Making yes. everybody horribly depressed. I'm hoping <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, like you said, with the alternative protein things, I think we're starting, are starting to see that peak yeah. because there was such a great interest and because of all the things you've already mentioned, with social media, it just drives more people, oh, I should go try that. Right. And so, of course, there's a huge interest, and you have to be able to, if your company is going to invest in that uh, alternative protein, you have to decide, is this a, a trend, uh, like so many diet trends we've seen in the past, or is this something that's going to have legs and last for a while? So, to build trust, I, I told the group, I spoke to the North Dakota Cattlemen's Stockman Association meeting last week and I was on the panel and the title was fake meat blah 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 right. so now for eternity if I'm going to be the expert for the other side to gain trust from the other side they're going to google me and they're going to see oh he was on the panel for fake meat we hate that word fake meat right. just like we hated the, or the, the other side hated clean meat but they backed off on clean meat so I tried to Keep their trust, but also to show them the science side, if you will, but you don't lead with science, and you start talking about muscle, and you start talking about things that they can relate to, but 
this how we frame things is is, is tricky. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's something I think that we can all improve at doing and continue to, to practice and get better at. The nice thing about it is, even if you serve on that panel, the likelihood of, of people necessarily holding that against you for eternity is not high. Um, we have a relatively short memory, and people are looking at kind of what's the body of your work. Yep. So there's always the opportunity to, to make that work. I call beyond me. Ethan Brown is sort of like like Stephen Jobs at Apple. He creates, he reinvents it every a cycle just to get himself back into the news. Yep. Mm -hmm. like the new iPhones look good every cycle. Yep. So I think similar to what you said about we may have missed the welfare issue, I think similar to the uh, cell-based meat group, right? Uh, coming from the pork board, uh, my observation on the welfare issue is the producers just, the first, the first uh, thought was to fight, you know, like you said, right? Hey, I don't take away my right to, to raise pigs. I, I'm the expert in it. I'm going to fight you because I know what you do, right? And talking about cell-based, I mean, internally at the pork board, we had struggled with what do we call it? Is it a meat alternative? Is it, uh, is it even meat? You know, it doesn't fit that definition. Uh, but again, similarly, producers are, you know, 
talking to staff saying, well, we're going to fight to make sure that everybody knows the difference between livestock raised meat or meat from livestock raised animals versus meat grown in a lab. You know, so if you could help us understand what consumers want to hear or how to hear or what the best verbiage is to talk about, you know, at the pork board they just talked about meat alternatives and lumped it all together, whether it was plant-based, lab-grown, and I think there's confusion when you just lump them all together versus, you know, segregating it out and what's, what, how do we talk against all those, you know? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think there will be a distinction over time between meat alternatives and cell-based meat. Yeah. Uh, because it's meat. Yeah. Um, it's not raised in the same way, it's not produced in the same way, but it is, it is still going to be considered meat. And I think that's where you can talk about, um, you know, if you want natural products, we have a great alternative. Yeah. Not that is natural, it's all one, one ingredient. Then we've also got to be willing and able to talk about what are the trade-offs from an environmental standpoint, uh, all of that. And the, the greater pressure for environment is now moving to feed, not going to be the environmental impact of, of manure. It's going to be the environmental impact of raising the food. Agree. Yeah. That's 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 the the quickly emerging frontier. Is the feedstuffs are going to be continually challenged. So this is what we know about how issues emerge. Right. This is this is kind of the traditional issue life cycle where if you look at the horizontal axis as time, there's an emergence phase, some kind of triggering event public or some kind of crisis event and then it moves to resolution and your cost, resources, and vulnerability increase as you move over that curve. What we're seeing today, again because of social media and other issues, is the emergence phase continues to be shortened. So it used to be that the emergence phase could last several years. Uh, now it can last a year, maybe several months. Uh, but historically we've not done a great job of, of managing this, right? Our first response has been to delay and hope it goes away. We don't talk about it, nobody else will. We certainly don't want to break into jail, so we'll just delay and hope it goes away. Second, we would rely on science. If that doesn't work, get more science. If that doesn't work, repeat again. Right? So that would be our, our, our second strategy. Third, talk about our economic impact, focusing primarily on our sector. Well, yeah, but you see how many jobs we create and how much we contribute to the economy, right? Number four, we would attack, attack those who attacked us. That would kind of be the next part in our strategy. And then fifth, if it wasn't your sector, keep your head down, offer quiet moral support, but don't get involved for fear of being next. Right? So that's kind of been our historical approach to issues management. And we've repeated that cycle for decades, uh, kind of hoping that it would work. It doesn't. Um, so what we really propose is really more of an emergence phase issues management where you understand and are doing a better job of sensing and saying, yeah, it's going to have some additional costs some additional vulnerability to your point about Kevin Fulton. If we choose to get engaged, there will be people who engage and ask questions. So we will have to take that into account. But if we can avoid having a triggering event or a crisis that vaults that higher into the public eye, at the end of the day, we will be better served. And so that's the philosophy that came behind the effort to put together a broader-based coalition to build trust in animal protein. I'll talk a little bit about kind of what we want to be able to accomplish and some of the very broad audiences, objectives, and, and uh, outcomes that we want to be able to achieve going forward. So our hope is we can get animal protein producers, processors, and related constituents to embrace a shared strategy to earn and maintain trust to amplify and multiply impact. <coughs> so the current chair of the CFI board is Craig Wilson from Costco. He also is a cattle producer. So he sees this from a lot of different perspectives. He's the global head of quality and food safety for Costco. Uh, they've also in the production business now with Lincoln Premium Poultry in Nebraska. He raises cattle, so he sees this from a very broad perspective. 
he really wants to make this kind of his signature initiative during his time as president of our board. Secondly, consumers concerned about animal protein production and consumption believe that animal protein is aligned with their values and is an important part of a socially responsible and healthy diet. Ultimately, that would be success. Influencers of targeted consumers embrace and advocate the ethical, sustainable nutrition and health attributes of animal protein with their audiences. And consumers concerned about animal protein production and consumption are not influenced by those advocating against animal protein consumption. Animal protein information is consistently positively represented in venues, events, and media covering sustainability, nutrition, and health. These are the two big ones. There's a convergence today between those two issues. It's creating a whole new uh, level of interest. Is it healthy for me? Is it healthy for the planet? And I want products that, that fit both of those as we go forward. Strategic approach makes sustainability, CSR, and trust building pre-competitive across the protein complex. If people are willing to do that. Share best practices across species and sectors to improve overall performance. So how can we get everyone together to say, we're not going to take pride of ownership here, but if there's something happening in PQA or BQA or the dairy farm program or something else that others can learn from, how do we create the environment where all of that information is shared and we work collectively together? Identify areas of vulnerability where additional programming or practice uh, improvement is needed to earn trust and embrace continuous improvement. So part of this is the industry stepping into those spaces and saying, okay, here's where we're vulnerable. We're going to take the initiative to move uh, forward more aggressively. So over 20 years or so ago now, when I was serving on the Animal Welfare Committee for the Pork Board, I remember we had a couple of people on that committee arguing that, well, as long as the sow can lie down for the first two trimesters of her pregnancy, do we really need a, a crate this large amount for her to lie down for the third? I mean, you can't even conceive that somebody's gonna have that conversation today, right? That would just seem absurd. But 20 years ago, that was an absurd conversation. That was, that was an open conversation in the Welfare Committee, right? At which time you invented the term full lateral recumbency. That's right, there we go, full <laughs> lateral recumbency. So we gotta look at that, right? What's next where we can look at it and go, this one might, might not stand muster with others. We might wanna take a leadership role in beginning to modify that. Increase and sustain stakeholder influence or engagement on priority consumer issues that impact trust. If we're not gonna be able to sustain this for a minimum of five years to, uh, from the get-go, it's a waste of time, right? We're just gonna be blowing smoke again. Uh, increase and strengthen alliances to create a platform where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, including the entire animal protein value chain. Highlight and celebrate those who are meeting or exceeding expectations to create models for others to emulate and to create content that builds trust. There's a lot of great stuff going on. There are organizations that are making real improvements and, and doing things that should be acknowledged and celebrated. So how do we create the Academy Awards for sustainability work that's happening in food and agriculture to really celebrate that, particularly with our food system customers, so they understand what's going on. Because frequently we find those sustainability or CSR roles within retailers across the food system turn pretty quickly. So how do we continue to engage with them and create content that will be meaningful? We have to have two parallel programming platforms. Historically, we've looked at kind of one or the other. Right? We're either gonna focus on continuous improvement or it's gonna be outreach and engagement. If we only do outreach and engagement, then it's just communication and PR. If we just do continuous improvement, we're not gonna capture the value of the good work that's being done or the improvements that are being made. We've gotta integrate both. And we've gotta have both of those if we're gonna be successful going forward. So just a handful of these. Target audience, consumers moving to meet alternatives because they believe that better aligns with their values. The outcome we wanna achieve, 
Consumers currently considering meat alternatives believe animal protein is aligned with their values and is an important part of a socially responsible healthy diet. Leverage ethnography and other hyper-targeting tools to target those consumers specifically. Create a messaging platform that builds trust in animal protein. Next one, consumer influencers, online bloggers, uh, media, consumer advocates, others. We want them to advocate and embrace the ethical, sustainable, nutritional attributes of animal protein. Engage them to increase understanding, create a branded digital presence that helps engage, engage those influencers and targeted consumers. Consumers who are not considering meat alternatives, which is the vast majority of the folks in the middle of the bell curve, uh, we want them to not be influenced by those who are advocating for them. Amplify and multiply the positive stories and reinforce support for consumption. Aggressively address misinformation related to protein production and consumption. So you've got to be willing to engage in that space where there is misinformation, but do it in a values-based manner. Targeted media and uh, those organizing events that engage consumers currently considering meat alternatives. We're in those spaces. We're represented at those venues and events and media covering sustainability, nutrition, and health. We identify those events. We make sure we've got a presence that's consistent with their values. And then we identify media that influence our target audience, build relationships, promote content, again, about the ethical, sustainable nutrition and health attributes of animal protein. And animal protein producers, processors, our related constituents, people are willing to say, we want to get engaged. We're willing to contribute. We're willing to work together. We're willing to work collaboratively. We do not need another organization. We don't want to have duplication. So how can we take what everybody is doing and make more of it? That's the overall concept. So recruit and retain broad-based group of animal protein stakeholders to provide leadership and resources, <coughs> create tools and resources to help drive a consistent strategy provide opportunities to collaborate, but amplify and multiply impact. So we're gonna have 15 to 20 kind of thought leaders together in early December. Uh, Costco will send out the official invitation. We'd like to invite Colette to be in that group um, to begin this conversation about kind of where we go from here on that broader platform to build trust in animal protein. And we think there's gotta be a larger integrated effort across the different sectors. Um, and we think by getting Costco and other leaders to help us convene, Questions about that? <clears throat> I mean, was that a little bit what um, Farmers and Ranchers Alliance was sort of attempting to do, was to coalesce the barnyard messaging? I think in, in one way it was. Yeah, I think that was the original goal, to kind of be that larger voice for all of agriculture. So do you think that they would interact with that effort at all? So they've got a new CEO, and she's terrific. Erin does great work. Her background really is in sustainability. She came from DMI, the Dairy Checkoff. They have refocused um, USFRA to focus almost exclusively on sustainability and kind of championed that as their primary uh, area of focus. So we want to collaborate with them. We've had several conversations with her. I think she's willing. I think the question becomes, what's the appropriate role? What do they have the resources to, to help support? But they really focused on that as being their, their exclusive Big. Big. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, I mean, that's you know, one, of my, one of my questions. Another 
the other thing I think we've got to think about is <clears throat> in a roundabout way, science is opinion. Yeah, science is not values neutral, right? Right, and, and I think I think that's probably we want to go say science says this, right? Uh, and I think if you look at well, even the, the welfare side of gestation trades, right? There's good parts of gestation Absolutely. Trades, there's bad parts. There's no clear science on what's right and what's wrong. You look at climate change, right? You look, it all depends on what perspective you take and, and, and how you put that together. The science will lead you to two very different conclusions. Correct. And, and, and neither one's necessarily right or wrong. So, I guess, you know, give me your thoughts on how you how you frame that because I think I think the consumer's getting in it with science, but at the end of the day, that becomes an opinion. Yeah. Great question. Well, just to add to that, I was just reading an article last night about this latest article that has come out um, or this review that's debunking the effect of um, meat on cancer. And but the bigger discussion in the article was. How confused consumers now feel because the nutritional recommendations on key issues are not just changing slightly but completely flip-flopping every three to five years and that we're just gonna like completely throw in the towel on yeah. that. So maybe you could add yeah. great question. So first on the on the biggest bad question, is there any way to overcome that? So there are two things that can overcome that. One is being very skilled at value-based engagement people understand that regardless of the size of operation, you share their values. And the second is increasing transparency. Those are the two, those are the two strategies that will overcome that. Because you know, we've kind of operated an ag that we have nothing to hide, but it's none of your business. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the approach that we've taken, and we've got to be a whole lot more open. And we don't get to decide what's relevant to our stakeholders. They get to decide and tell us, and then we've got to be open about that also kind of rubs against the grain culturally of how we've operated in agriculture. So being more open, being more transparent, and being able to connect on values can overcome the size, the, the bias against size and scale. Part of the question about whether or not your science is relevant depends on your ability to engage, your willingness to engage, and your willingness and ability to sustain engagement. Uh, because we've tended to be in and out of these conversations and we haven't always been in a place where we need to engage with influencers who are able to help carry the message. So one of the strategies we use frequently is to identify a group of digital influencers who have a fairly large following and engage very openly and very intentionally and pretty intensely with them and then help amplify and multiply their content. So if we can find a group of, of digital influencers that have a following of 10, 12, 15 million, we engage with them and then they help us amplify and multiply that message. <coughs> That's in addition to having channels where individual credible experts are engaging in the conversation. So part of this is really understanding the difference in the communication environment, the need, the need to be involved in several different platforms at the same time, and how we sustain that over time. So those two things can help us get there. I think the, the part of the challenge we've had again is, is, is if we can't guarantee success and we can't see the outcome easily in front of us, it's easy to get overwhelmed and go, I can't do anything to change it, so I'm just going to live with it. We can. We can control it, but we can't influence it. I 
I think that's that's also been a challenge for us because we've always wanted to really control the communication and control the messaging. One of the key things that we do in the values-based communication training is it's not about the message. Right? It's about your ability to connect based on values and then share whatever you have to share in a way that's authentic for you and it will carry phenomenal weight. So it's not here's the six magic words about hormone use. It's about how do you engage in that conversation so that people trust you as a credible source. And I agree with all that, but I think also to your point, one of the things that um, science has missed, as you brought up, is um, it's the study of something. So they're, it's continually learning. And, and so where um, consumers and others seem to have um, missed guidance or us not helping our students better is everything has a risk and everything has a benefit, and how do you weigh what you learned from science to make those value-based decisions? And so until we can get past that, then you're just gonna follow down whoever you, whoever fits your bias. But then, then that's, 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 so that, yeah, so when you make those decisions and, and you interpret the science and, and then, when you communicate that, then that's perceived as your bias, which somewhat it is your bias, you know? I mean, so, um, I mean, that that article that just came out in the Annals of Nutrition, I mean, they, they found the, pretty much the same meta-analysis that some of these other folks have, but they're like, well, you know, seven out of a thousand, eh, that's, that's an interpretation difference, and so. I agree, man. The housing illustration is a great place because whether it's gestation stalls or cages for layers, the science will, will indicate someplace different than necessarily where, so it's a values-based judgment, right? You'd stay with conventional cages if you wanted to go with what's going to be uh, prevent mortality, right? You'd have the lowest level of mortality. So if mortality is your measurement, you stay with that. If the ability to exhibit natural behavior has a higher value for you than mortality, you're gonna go with a different system. So, yeah. So I think that this discussion we're having here really shows to, you know, back up exactly what I feel like you've been saying is, we used to have one voice for the meat industry that was across all species, you know, we had the meat board. Yep. And that was really focused on doing exactly what you're talking about, yep. doing where it's impacting children in schools, teaching nutrition, sorts of programs for dietitians, doctors, it was a great resource to be able to talk about where does meat fit in every level of your life. And then also, you know, got the message out on any kind of topic or issue. And so it, it really comes down to all this that you're talking about, what Dave brought up, what Jenny brought up. What we all are talking about is the divergency that happens because you have a probability of being less than 0.05 and you have to interpret and it isn't just black and white all the time. It's as black and white as it but that's why we really need the whole world voice. And the bottom line is, we have not had a voice for 25 years that has been unified, that has been across all species, that has just given a single clear message on whatever topic it was. And that's why I think what you're talking about, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to do is what we have to have. Because we can talk about me, but this group you're talking about gives us one unified ag voice. And that's where we're really, we used to not need that because we were 
not under attack as an entire ag industry, but right now, I mean, I think, especially in the rich countries that have no hunger and things like that, the ag system is totally under a barrage of attacks for whatever reason. And it shifts depending on whatever, you know, the crops and vegetable people are under just as much of an attack as the meat industry because it's GMOs and it's pesticides, it's herbicides, it's, uh, you know, you're ruining the land and, and every other thing so it's, it is a need that's really big. And so I, I think that, to me, the discussion we just had on <clears throat> how do you address big is not bad or bad or whatever, how do you interpret data and things like that, make it more important to have a unified voice, to have a group of people, because we can get everybody together and we'd all still disagree as a meets group. Like, if we brought up a single topic in this room and started discussing it, you'd see the best fight you ever saw a bunch of meat scientists, you know, that all have the same background. And so that's why it's great to be able to talk about getting a bigger vision and going back to having a unified voice as the entire meat industry. You know, we even have organizations like NAMI and AMSA and things like that. We can't be unified as much as we should be on really critical things. So I don't know, I just throwing that out because I see the need for what you're talking about. So much needed just for the meat industry. And I think you're talking about it on a larger scale for the entire ag industry. And Frankly, we need it because the number of issues are so big and mind-boggling. Just want to go, go have a beer because it's too big for me. It's kind of like we need to be able to address those and how to do it. Yeah, you're the fourth person that's brought up meat board analogy that we used to do that when we had livestock meat board. Yeah, it was really effective and we had a lot of good that came out of it. But it's not to say we wouldn't be where we're at even we still right, have meat right, board. Right, right. Uh, it's to say that we need something like that again. Maybe that's what the AMSA can do. We can join with those other organizations that we covenant. Sure. Just for the meat sector, and then of course the bigger one, yes. we can be a part of that as well. Yeah, this is going to be on animal protein, so just animal protein, but it's going to include <coughs> dairy, eggs, anything that's animal protein. And we have success stories. I mean, the great news is you look at the egg industry. In 1995, it was a skull and crossbones. You died to eat one single egg. And today, Eggs are in the hotel or everywhere. Everybody eats all the eggs because it's the healthiest thing ever. And so, I mean, it's not like you can't change it. And where they changed it was they started, and dairy did the same thing. They put a milk mustache and hung all the cafeterias. And now all the young folks that are in their 20s and 30s think dairy products are great. For the most part, I mean, they use a lot of that to be able to try to control their diet and health. So it is possible that the number one thing that I feel like that you hit on the nail on the head is it has to be a long-term, every single day, for five years, I mean, we just have to get the culture of all of our meat science kids and graduate students and everybody to understand that this has got to happen for the rest of our lives. It's like, it's never going away. We've got to have this much budget that goes into getting our message out. And I don't know, I mean, that's kind of where we can really help because we have to get companies to get that in their budget to get to organizations like this or this field that that's got to be a consistent message. And a single company can't do it effectively. Charlie, one of the challenges I think that, and this came up yesterday um, to some degree, but you know, as you look at something like this, and many of us would agree, I think one of the challenges, like I'll just speak for myself, but working for an organization where on part of our group with the checkoff resources and the USDA oversight, we have, we take one approach. We can't disparage, we can't compare, we can't do a lot of things like that. 
but then an organization is also funded by members and producers who have a passion for what they do. So you'll hear different things out of our group. You'll hear Fight Meek and you'll hear another side saying meat alternative. So knowing that that's the reality of today, then an initiative like this, how can we um, hear and understand those different positions and direction, but also then utilize the most appropriate pieces to leverage something like from AMSA as a group with an approach more similar to this? Yeah, great question. So part of it will be clarity and mission. The mission will be to earn consumer trust and build consumer trust in how the protein. Mm -hmm. And so if what people are proposing are tactics or strategies that are inconsistent with building trust, we simply aren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. The other nice part about it is even though CFI gets a lot of checkoff dollars, we're not restricted by USDA because we get dollars mm -hmm. from us as well. So we don't have to go through the USDA approval process for content or information or other things that we share. So we'll get alignment and then it's going to be a matter of um, not allowing it to devolve to the lowest common denominator, mm -hmm. but having a small group of leaders who are clear on what the vision is and what the mission is and staying mm -hmm. committed to that and um, recruiting like-minded folks who are willing to that effort. Mm -hmm. um, so from, from my standpoint, it's more, it's more critical that we remain true to the mission and the vision than it is to have the tent include everybody that could possibly mm -hmm. get there. Because we'll find folks in every, in every protein sector that will share that vision and mission and willing to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. So what we normally do with these kind of things, you start with a small concentric circle of people who also see the vision. Mm -hmm. Then you can get to those who share the vision, and then you get to those who don't want to be left out there. So that's kind of how you begin to, to build. So research is going to be integral in this, maybe not the first step, right? <clears throat> is is there, this is going to sound wrong, but is there better or worse research to use? Because one, initially when I was at the pork board, we used to hear, oh, it's a pork board funded study or NCBA or NAMI, it's got to be biased, it's going to be skewed, they already know the outcome before they even fund it, which is not the case, but so is there a, a better entity or is there a better way to get this research done and that's probably not the right verbiage to use but what type of research do we need to to, to look unbiased or have consumers feel that it's not a, a biased type of research so that's a great transition to best food facts because what we've seen in, in, in focus groups and in our, our quantitative research as well is that people like information from university academics and they really I mean you'll find a few that will dive into well that was paid for by A, B, or C is that university academics are less likely to put self-interest ahead of their their uh, career integrity to, to, to do that. So you'll find a handful that really like that. I'll just do a couple minutes on this because I don't really get, we're getting short on time. So Best Food Facts is our consumer-facing platform that where we have a faculty of more than 200 academics that engage, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the content here in just a little bit. Uh, digital platform dedicated to bringing consumers objective, transparent, trustworthy information. Again, the network of more than 200 academics and other credentialed folks. Leverages the best digital practices so we can join the conversations taking place around food and ag topics. We can do a lot of market, market monitoring and really focus on digital hyper-targeting. Uh, our content strategies, search engine marketing, social media, precision digital targeting campaigns, online, inf online influencer experiences and editorial, social listening, and a whole range. We get about a million and a half visitors a year, which isn't where we want to be, but that comes with really no budget and no promotion. And then we've got relationships with 175 different online influencers who have a total reach of over 14 million. Uh, 
uh, we've got 35,000 of our keywords are ranking very high on Google. So we're, we're making an impact, we're having progress there. Um, so we give the food system the opportunity to redefine the narrative and begin to own the digital dialogue around critical issues. We now have the ability to say, so we're doing a couple of partner projects with FMI, and they wanted to do slow growing boilers, and I can't remember what the other one was, but they wanted to know, okay, for this amount of money, what percentage of the digital dialogue can we control around that topic? And how can we make that happen? And so we can scale that and say, okay, you want to own 50, 75, 80% of the digital dialogue around the topic, make that happen. We can do that through, through messaging facts. I'll give you a quick illustration. Uh, Cheez-Its were being attacked by Food Babe uh, because they included TBHQ. Right? And so that was one of the preservatives that, that she was going after as it relates to TBHQ. And so our team picked up on that and said, okay, we, saw, we see a spike here in TBHQ. Let's get engaged and get some content out there. And so this was not any relationship with Kellogg's. I think it's Kellogg's that owns Cheez-Its. Um, or whoever it was, this was just because we saw it pop up and we wanted to get it addressed. So we got some content produced, TBHQ, what is it, is it dangerous? And then there are other things that you do that. You gotta look at what's the, what's the dialogue that's taking place, what terms are being used in that. What we found is that within 24 hours, we were showing up on page one, uh, several different places on page one for the Google search for TBHQ because of our ability to engage. So, these are the questions that we do people are asking. What's TBHQ made of? What is Cheez-Its? Is BHT bad for your health? What is BHT used for in food? So we can develop content that got us on page one, not as a paid ad, right? But simply as content. So we weren't paying to get there, it was simply because of the quality of the content. And 90% of search traffic clicks come from page one on Google. So when our content ranks high, we push others down. So we were able to push Food Babe to the second page, which is where content goes to die. So this is where you need to be. You've got to be on page one of the Google search. But by being on page one, we pushed her down. Yes? So did so it wasn't paid content, but did you buy the words? We did not. Okay. We did not. We did not buy the words. We did not pay content. That's part of our strategy. If people okay. say we want to own a certain percentage mm -hmm. of the content, we can do that. Mm -hmm. But we didn't buy the, we didn't buy the words either. This was just through having content that we know would be would, would work well. So again, that happened immediately and then Post went live in August of 16, over 60,000 views of it uh, over the following 12 months. People spent about five minutes on uh, reading that post, which is an eternity online uh, for people to go to. So not a huge number of people, but right, we were able to diffuse and push down the TBHQ conversation within about 24 hours. So it was a helpful way for us to be able to engage. We've recently done one, this was supported by DuPont, uh, four new articles addressing common pesticide-related questions and concerns. Are pesticides safe for human consumption? Are pesticides safe for the environment? Are pesticides needed to grow food? What's the difference between pesticide-free and organic? And they had three specific geographies that they wanted us to target, Baltimore, Minneapolis, and, and, uh, and Seattle. So we're able to do that, right? And if you say, we want to target only millennials or only foodies or only moms in this specific geography, can do that, right? So there's lots of ways to infinitely target the audience that you want to actually reach. Um, so we can make that happen. So within the first 48 hours, Best Food Facts began ranking in the top two positions on Google for pesticide-specific keywords. Again, this is without any kind of paid support, uh, just because of the content. And we offered paid support, uh, so our Google paid search effort showed up on 31,000 pesticide-related search results, 1,100 clicks, 31,000 uh, 31, earned 13% of the overall share of voice on those keywords in February. So 
we can kind of continue to monitor that and then see where are we and then they can say we want to own more or less of that conversation based on what's going on. The other nice thing about it is, is once we have content on Best Food Facts, if something breaks, a company or organization can come in and say, okay, we now want to amplify that content, we want to own 60% of that dialogue for the next 60 days. Wasn't all that important to us before, but now it's crucial to us, so we really want to own it. So we came up with one just, just as an illustration, right? So if you wanted to own hormones in beef, let's say that AMSA wanted to own hormones in beef, you could say, okay, we'll find all the related, well, we'll find all the related words, all the things that people are searching for, and you could have 75 to 100% share of voice on hormones in beef for $5,000 a month. Right? That's what it would cost to own 75 to 100% of that dialogue. Now, all of this is driven by how hot is the issue? So if you wanted to own 100% of the GMO issue, it would cost a lot more than that because there's a lot more conversation, right? Not so much on hormones in beef. Uh, the other key thing is you have to be able to use the language that's being used in the conversation or you don't show up. So the Food Service Packaging Institute want to have some conversation about, well, we'd like to help people better understand food service packaging. How many people do you think Google food service packaging? <laughs> Probably none, right? Takeout containers, uh, you know, food packaging waste, straws, and that's what you, you gotta be, you gotta understand where the conversation is taking place, what it's around, uh, because they could own all the conversation around food service packaging for about a buck 99, but they'd be reaching no one because no one's having a conversation around food service packaging. Um, and we actually have uh, content there from Dan Thompson. We've got a nice little infographic and some other stuff from Dan on hormones. So we've already got talk, we've already got content around that. But just as an illustration about how that can work for, for you, if you said, hey, as an association, we want to own this topic or that topic or another topic, or one of your members decides they want to sponsor it, but it's going to be more credible coming from a spokesperson or, or a messenger who's a member of AMSA as opposed to a company, all those are possibilities. So it's just a way to think about how does AMSA engage in these conversations in a way that's more relevant and more impactful for them. So you said that some stuff you didn't have to buy the content, but sometimes you do have to buy it? Well, to... we'll, we'll, we'll buy it, we'll buy the keywords, we'll do other things to promote it to increase the visibility. But we generally show up really well without that. Uh, but a lot of it's going to depend on how hot is the topic, who else is competing in that space, sure. all the rest of that. So I, before I knew you were going to talk about that, was on Best Food Facts, and I was looking at um, the expert list, and um, we're short on meat scientists. Are you? Yes. Well, we'd we love have, to have some more. Um, Janiel, and we have, uh, so we have Dr. Yancey, and then we have um, uh, Casey Owens. Um, so how would we... What's that? Hi, Lawrence. Okay, so we have three. But on a comparative basis, we're still quite low. So how would we go about um, Just let me know if you'd like to have
Wells Street Forum, right? They know they're in there, they're in the field every night talking to Walmart shoppers. They know GMOs are not an issue for their shopper. They didn't want it to be something that stuck to their brand. So they said, can you guys help us out? Sure. So we contacted an expert, got content up, got it posted in 24 hours, sent them the link so, link, so people that were engaging with their customers, either online or on the phone, could say, thanks so much for calling, thanks for your interest. I'd like to share with you a link to an independent website where scientists can give you the information you're interested in about this topic. So it just moved away from the brand. They didn't have to own it. It didn't become a problem for them. So. Other questions about the presentation information I've shared? So I have a question for you. Because we live in a small town outside of Fort Worth, and I don't know, we have the most active Brock community Facebook page of anybody I've ever seen. And so like engaging in the area of misinformation. So Keith and I started coaching these judging teams, so now we get all the new questions, right? Like, yeah. oh, you're the expert. So yeah. someone showed up at my house one time with me asking you to smell it. <laughs> 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 it's just insane. This Don't thing. laugh. You called me about ribs and whatever. Oh my god, they were rancid as hell. <laughs> so I took back to the grocery store, she goes, Don't even open the bag, just go get some new ones. Yeah. <laughs> and even at AMSA, you know, we had some lady call us because she left something on her front steps for yes. three hours and went. So we get that, right? So the biggest question we have, though, is, and my husband gets into it because he's a commodity broker on the cattle side, is the whole thing, you know, we know animal production that we have today, people are concerned how, you know, how we get to the protein that we do with our animals. But in the whole thing of cell-based protein, when is that going to come out? Because that's the biggest question, because a lot of our restaurants now are, have all these, you know, Beyond Burgers, and then all these stuff about cell-based protein. And, Casey's cattle guys, they get all the different reports and they're concerned, right, for their livelihood. But none of them know how it's produced. They can't find any information on how it's produced. So when is that coming? When is the information coming and when it's produced? Yeah, so like how is that, like what's that process? Like when are
taking adult stem cells, basically, so satellite cells that we know, myogenic stem cells, and how the mouse model was 100 years ago. So each scientist have been growing stuff in a petri dish for 100 years. But Paul, he's out here. So we've been doing this a lot with our, our where we take the science and we interview Paul, but then you have to package it in a way that people will understand. And that's how we get to that content. So who is that filter? Who is that savvy journalist that, that can understand the science and translate the science so that people can Business Insider person um, that we had contact with. Um, that's what she was trying to get to. Those are the best questions we get at AMSA is they'll call and say, how is this news produced? Yeah. How is it made? You know, and Good Food Institute has, they wrote a paper a couple years ago and have like an infographic of how, but it's like, you, I have access to all this stuff, but then when I talk to, you know, I go to have on that PTC committee and you go to that meeting, it's like, well, how is this made? Well, then you have 50 moms. So if you ever need a mom group, just call me out the best yeah. mom group. Yeah. They were actively engaged, but it's like, you, you know, you have 30 seconds, right? You can't explain so you can do this. Because is completely confused. And, That's true. Yeah. I whole RFC and understood things, but you don't have access. So it's, but you know, and I think in our little town, you know, it's kind of an ag base, but it's predominantly horse ranches. But people, they want information, right? They want decisions. And they even have it to where, your information that you have here is that stuff. So we have teachers. So Reese came home one day and she was like, my teacher told me I should only eat organic. Okay, what's your teacher's name? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, how do you then, do you have information that can be shared in the school system? So sure. when teachers are teaching topics, they have access to this because. Yes. And Best Food Facts has a, has, has a great, it's got a, I, don't, I don't know how many posts, but I mean, there's tons of content there that you can take a look at. And we compare organic and conventional. We're not bashing or promoting one or the other. Here's the evaluation, here's the information, make, make a decision. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much a conversation I have with the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, Good Food Institute is still using clean meat. Um, so Memphis, some of the specific companies have gone away from that, but they are still, as a representative group, definitely tied into that language in a little bit more of an inflammatory way. Mm -hmm. You see how long we're going to get them to moderate that. They know it's going to be. Any other questions? All right. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Really Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.